Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. That's halftime, ladies and gentlemen. What a game of Texas football. Baylor University is up by a touchdown after absolutely dominating A&M for those first two quarters and... <laughs> Look at that! Baylor's putting on a little show for the A&M cadets. They've certainly earned some gloating rights after their team's performance here at the Cotton Palace. Wait a minute. The A&M cadets aren't too keen on the joke. Some of them are making a rush for the field and... There's a fight breaking out, folks. Students from both sides are streaming down the stands. Please, stay in your seats, everybody. It's like an all-out riot down there. It's worse than 1924. Break it up! Break it up! Ladies and gentlemen, please stay in your seats. There's a boy down there swinging something. Put it down, kid. He... He cracked that boy's head clean open. Medic! We need a medic on the field. Please, everyone, back to your seats. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the murder of Charles Sessoms during a 1926 college football riot. This week, we'll cover Sessoms' life and the sports rivalry that led to his death. Next week, we'll cover the riot's aftermath and an alleged conspiracy to protect his killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. On November 30th, 1899, 
Texas A&M's college football squad headed to Waco to face off against Baylor University's team for the first time. They were two new teams playing a relatively new sport. Neither of them had even selected official names or mascots yet. The sport itself was just getting started, as the first college football game had only taken place 30 years earlier. Teams hadn't even agreed on an official set of rules until 1876, when Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Columbia penned the first college football rulebook. Those early rules were distinctly different from the game we know today. For instance, the forward pass was illegal. Field goals and touchdowns were both worth five points. Teams only had to make it five yards per first down, and the football itself was almost the size of a watermelon. Texas A&M's team had only played the game for five years, but that was five more years than Baylor. A&M easily decimated Baylor, beating them 33 points to zero. The A&M players were presumably in high spirits as they set off back to College Station, Texas. But they had classes and lives waiting for them back on campus, so the Baylor win likely faded from their minds while they rode. None of them realized they had just begun a century-long rivalry. The competition truly took hold a few years later. On Thanksgiving 1901, Baylor finally got payback for that embarrassing shutout in 1899. Baylor devastated Texas A&M with a stunning blowout. The final score was Baylor 47, A&M 0. The defeat had to sting for the boys from Texas A&M, but they knew that they would have a chance at redemption in 1902. And in the meantime, there were other ways to get back at their new rivals. Hi there, Barbara. I was wondering, if you aren't doing anything tonight, would you be interested in grabbing a malted with me? Darn, sorry, Reggie. I've already got plans with Chet. Chet? I don't think I know Chet. You wouldn't. He's not from around here. Hey there, Barbara. Oh, sorry for interrupting, big guy. Wait, I do know you. You're on the A&M football team, aren't you? What are you doing in Waco? Hey, the drive doesn't feel so long when you know Barbara's waiting on the other side. <laughs> Oh, Chet. <laughs> See you on the gridiron, Chief. In the early 1900s, Texas A&M was an all-boys university with a focus on military science. Once the cadets noticed all the women on Baylor's co-ed campus, they reportedly started making regular trips to Waco for dates. Baylor was a Baptist school, and some of the female student body seemed to prefer these out-of-town boys with military backgrounds over the pious church-going crowd in Waco. The Baylor boys didn't welcome the new competition. Just to add insult to injury, the Texas A&M football team made sure that Baylor's 1901 win was only a fluke. For the next five years, A&M dominated Baylor. Seven games went by without Baylor scoring a single point. But the budding rivalry came to a grinding halt in 1905 when a series of deaths threatened to put an end to football. On November 25, 1905, three players in three separate football games were killed on the field. A 19-year-old Union College halfback died after being kicked in the head during a play. 
Another got hit so hard in the chest that a rib went straight through its heart. The youngest, a high school student in Missouri, was knocked unconscious by hard tackle and never woke up. He was only 16. Over a dozen more football players died in similar ways in 1905. At least 150 were hurt on the field and left with broken backs, necks, or concussions. It became such a widespread problem that Baylor decided to ban the sport entirely for the upcoming 1906 season. Eventually, President Teddy Roosevelt even decided to get involved. Roosevelt was a fan of football, but his own son had been injured during a college game. So towards the end of 1905, he called a meeting of prominent college football coaches and staff to the White House to see how they could make the sport safer. You should be ashamed. Come around to this side of the table and say it to my face. Gladly. Enough! Quiet down, gentlemen. Let's sort this one out. My boys are dying on the field. We owe it to them to suspend all games until we figure out a fix. We can't put an end to an entire sport here. Listen, I believe in outdoor games, and I don't mind in the least that they're rough games or that those who take part in them are occasionally injured. But death is another beast entirely. The rules need to change. Well, what if the boys could just pass the ball ahead of them instead of just laterally? It would break them out of their pack, at least. I might not be completely opposed. And what if we pause the game whenever someone landed on the ball so players don't just start piling on top of each other? <laughs> Hold on. We're trying to help the sport, not fully emasculate it. <laughs> <laughs> The colleges finally agreed on a new set of rules in 1906 and revolutionized the sport completely. Suddenly, it was legal to throw the ball down the field and to punt. A 1906 newspaper article by Swarthmore College football coach George Brooke detailing the new rules recommended that coaches start their men catching and passing and kickers should be developed at once. Football as we know it today was born. With the new rules in place, Baylor decided to bring its team back together. And when they faced off against Texas A&M again in 1908, they finally took home a win. Baylor students couldn't stop A&M from stealing their dates outside the field, but at least they could hold their own on the gridiron. A few years later, the two schools finally decided to make their rivalry official. In 1916, the administration at Baylor and Texas A&M signed a contract ensuring that the teams would go head-to-head -head for one big game every year. A&M agreed to travel to the Baylor campus every season so the teams could play at Waco's brand new Expo Center, the Cotton Palace. But in order to keep it from feeling like a Baylor home game, they split the tickets down the middle. From now on, half the stadium's audience would be Baylor fans, the other half would be reserved for A&M. The Cotton Palace game quickly became one of the biggest college football games in Texas. The rivalry between the two teams kept getting bigger, and so did the tension in the stands. In 1922, the newly named Baylor Bears beat A&M's team, now known as the Aggies. But as Baylor students streamed onto the field to celebrate the victory, the Aggies fans angrily headed down to defend their team's honor. But before things could get out of hand, the fire department showed up to turn their hoses on them. The water managed to calm down the crowd that time, but it didn't stop the hostility brewing between the two schools. And soon, 
the rivalry erupted into bloody violence. Up next, we'll meet Charles Sessoms, an A&M cadet who found himself in the middle of a football rivalry that turned deadly. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. If you're looking for more extraordinary stories, the new Spotify original from Parcast explores daring achievements, death-defying stunts, and exploits that didn't quite make it into the history books. It's called Incredible Feats, and it's a daily show hosted by comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck. Every weekday, Dan shares the surprising details behind people's bravest, strangest, most boundary-pushing moments. Like when Dan Carnassus ran 350 miles without stopping. Or when Julianne Kopka survived 11 days alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old. Or when Felix Baumgartner broke the sound barrier while skydiving from the edge of space. You'll hear wildly unexpected stories about everyone from free divers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats aims to amaze, so don't miss out. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1922, a young man named Charles Sessoms began his first year at Texas A&M. Sessoms was already 20 at the time, a few years older than his fellow freshmen. Sessoms had graduated from Forest Avenue High School in Dallas in 1918, but he decided to keep living at home with his parents and look for a job in town. He found one as a jewelry clerk in downtown Dallas. Sessoms was hardworking and beloved by his teachers, and he likely brought that same ethic to his job. He quickly worked his way up the ranks at his jewelry store. By 1922, Sessoms had already been promoted to salesman. But when his younger brother, Harry, graduated from high school that spring and enrolled at Texas A&M, Sessoms had a change of heart. Welcome home, brother. How was work? Don't even get me started, Harry. Some kid nabbed a necklace and made it out the door before I saw him. Chased him halfway down the block. boy, Charles. I left a customer in the store while I did it. When I came back with the necklace, a whole row of promise rings were missing. How much are they paying you? Not enough. Well, why don't you quit? Come along to college with me this fall. I know you've got the grades for it. I don't know. Come on, brother. Don't you want more? Or are you going to keep chasing kids down the street for the rest of your life? Sessoms decided to leave the jewelry world behind and become an Aggie at A&M alongside Harry. It was a decision that would eventually cost him his life. On Saturday, November 1st, 1924, thousands of Sessoms fellow cadets from Texas A&M filled the streets of Waco for another face-off against the Baylor Bears. 
25,000 fans reportedly filled the stands at the Cotton Palace that day. It was the biggest football crowd the city had ever seen. It was a close game. The Aggies and the Bears kept the score tied for most of it, but at halftime, a few Baylor students piled into a Ford painted red and white, the school's colors, and drove onto the field. The car was known around campus as the Bucking Ford because it had a statue of a farmer riding a barrel mounted to the back. The Ford tore around the field to the cheers of the Baylor fans, but when it veered straight towards the A&M football team resting on the sidelines, the moment took a different turn. The Baylor student behind the wheel narrowly avoided their rival players. To the A&M fans in the crowd, the moment was a little too close for comfort. The teams came back to play the second half, but some cadets in the stands couldn't forget about that near miss with the bucking Ford. And when a Baylor player named Ralph Pittman slipped past the Aggies' defensive line for a spectacular 60-yard game-winning touchdown, things went from bad to worse. After the game, Baylor fans took to the field to celebrate the victory, and a horde of angry A&M cadets headed down after them. Harry, don't go down there. Don't get in the middle of it. You going to let Baylor get away with that? Where's your school spirit? They almost ran our boys over, but the entire Baylor crowd doesn't have to pay for it. Hey, cadet, look over. She didn't do anything. Luckily, the Waco Police Department was able to break up the fans before it turned into a full-on brawl. But at least one young Baylor girl was hurt during an attack by an A&M cadet. Afterward, her father put up a massive reward of $250, the equivalent of nearly $4,000 today, for anyone who could identify the culprit. But it seems like no one ever turned the boy in. After the escalating violence in 1922 and 1924, Baylor announced that the slogan for 1925's matchup would be sportsmanship, then victory. If Baylor meant the line to be a slight against the unsportsmanlike conduct of A&M's cadets the year before, the administration played innocent. But everyone was on high alert when the two teams met for their annual game in October of 1925 particularly because the game was scheduled for Halloween night. Come on, Charlie. We're all taking the train down to Waco tonight. I think I'll pass. I saw how it was last year. You young guys can be such hotheads. Spare me the high and mighty act, brother. You're not even three years older than me. I have a paper to write this weekend. We're only in college once. You're an Aggie. Quit hiding up here in your room and come act like one. Hmm. How long until the train leaves? That's more like it. But by all accounts, the game was peaceful, at least in the stands. On the football field, Texas A&M crushed Baylor with a 13 to nothing shutout. As frustrated and sad as the cadets were after their loss the year before, the big win on Halloween brought their spirits soaring back. Oh, we wrecked them. We destroyed them. <laughs> I was there too. You don't have to scream at me. 13 to zip. They couldn't even make a field goal. Just wait till next year. We'll get you back. Oh, I'll see you there. Find me in the stands. I'd love to watch your face when you lose. All right, all right, big brother. Cool it down. Let's get you home. It seemed like the two colleges managed to live up to Baylor's slogan that afternoon. 
Both teams and their fans were absolutely sportsmanlike at the Cotton Palace. Baylor's Dean W.S. Allen later called the whole day perfectly wonderful. But if Allen thought one friendly game meant the bloody rivalry was behind them, he was wrong. The next game between the Baylor Bears and the Texas A&M Aggies was scheduled for Saturday, October 30th, 1926. But as thousands of students began filling the city of Waco on Friday in preparation for the weekend game, one thing seemed clear. The cheerful rivalry of 1925 was gone. By Friday night, a local Waco newspaper reported that multiple fistfights had already broken out among some football fans and it ominously warned that there could be more so-called hand-to-hand battles to come. On Saturday morning, another train from College Station, Texas, arrived in Waco. It held the school's entire football team, the school's band, and a few hundred fellow students who hadn't made the trip down on Friday. But one group wasn't with them, the Aggies Corps of Cadets. Most years, the 2,000 members of the school's military leadership program led a march down the streets of Waco before the big game against Baylor. That morning, the Corps of Cadets was nowhere to be found. The huge group had decided to skip the Baylor game so they could make an appearance when A&M played Southern Methodist University in Dallas later that season. That meant that this year, when the 13,000-person audience streamed through the gates of the Cotton Palace Stadium on Saturday afternoon, only several hundred were A&M fans. The rest of them were rooting for Baylor. The Aggies were vastly outnumbered. And the few who showed up likely weren't happy with Baylor's packed and rowdy section of the stands. One A&M cadet who made it to the Cotton Palace that day was Charles Sessoms. Sessoms was a senior at this point. His next six months would be a busy race towards graduation, but on that Saturday, he likely only had Baylor on his mind. Get a load of all the Baylor co-eds, Harry. You could be selling necklaces back in Dallas right now. But look at us! College seniors. I owe it all to you, little brother. Thank you for just- Oh, spare me the sappy story, Charles. Let's go find us some good seats. From the look of this A&M turnout, we'll have plenty to choose from. That just means we'll have to cheer twice as hard. Charles Sessoms headed into the Cotton Palace and settled down to watch the big game. Just a month earlier, he had celebrated his 24th birthday. He would never make it to 25. Up next, we'll explore how the 1926 A&M versus Baylor game erupted into violent chaos and left Sesums dead. Now, back to the story. At 2 p.m. on October 30th, 1926, The Texas A&M band marched onto the Cotton Palace football field in Waco, Texas, and began belting out the school's fight song in front of the 13,000-person stadium. The tune, also known as the Aggie War Hymn, was first written by an A&M student during World War I. Its lyrics actually name-check A&M's other rivals, the University of Texas, but that day, all anyone in the Aggie crowd could think of was defeating Baylor. A few minutes from the 2.30 kickoff, A&M's head Yale leader, J.D. Langford, surveyed the audience from his spot on the field. 
As one of the school's YELL leaders, Lankford had been elected by the student body to lead Aggie fans in a series of cheers. It was a well-respected role, and Lankford must have felt like he had a duty to look after his fellow A&M students. Because when he sensed something in the air that day he didn't like, he knew it was up to him to do something about it. Baylor! Baylor! Excuse me? What brings you all the way to this side of the field? You aren't planning to bring out the bucking Ford again, right? Well, there won't be a bucking Ford. Excellent, thank you. My Aggie crowd has a real edge on today, and if they see that car, there could be trouble that neither me nor anybody else can stop. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Now, if you'll excuse me. Right, sure, right. Uh, thanks again. With that, Langford headed back to his side of the field, and the game began. Unfortunately, things took a wrong turn for the Aggies almost immediately. AM won the initial coin flip and kicked off to Baylor, and Baylor almost returned the ball for a touchdown. By the end of the first quarter, the Aggies were down 6-0. They managed to score one touchdown in the second quarter and nabbed the extra point, but the team couldn't hold their lead for long. By halftime, Baylor was back on top with 13 points to AM 7. Things weren't looking good for the Aggies. This wasn't the triumphant win the fans likely expected after last year's dominating shutout. The team was losing. The Aggie Corps of Cadets wasn't there to put on their usual performance at halftime. And just to add insult to injury, Baylor planned their own satirical halftime show. Look at them down there. They're dressed like cadets. They're laughing at our boys. Listen up. I'm your yell leader. Stay with me. Don't lose your cool and give them the satisfaction. That's better. Now, if we all just- Hey, look at that Ford. Oh no. As some Baylor students put on a fake routine to make fun of the A&M cadets, a car barreled out onto the football field. But it wasn't the infamous bucking Ford that had almost mowed down a row of A&M players in 1924. This time, the car was painted in Baylor school colors and overflowed with Baylor women. Each one held a sign featuring the Baylor football team's winning scores over the years. And this was too much for the A&M crowd to handle. Langford looked at the car just in time to see a young cadet named W.L. Lee race towards it at full speed and leap onto the moving vehicle. Lee grabbed onto the car's back tire and held on, forcing it to come to a grinding halt. One of the women in the car went flying out of the side. Esther Didson, who had traveled from Houston to see the game that day, later explained what happened next to the Baylor College newspaper. One girl was knocked clear off the car. She rolled over several times and must have been pretty badly bruised. The Baylor boys made a rush for the car to save the girls and the lone boy at the wheel. At that point, a Baylor freshman later remembered, all hell broke loose. Hundreds of students from both sides streamed down to the field with any weapons that they could find. Some were carrying empty bottles, others had boards or pieces of the wooden chairs from the stands. The halftime performance had dissolved into a riot. And soon, Charles Sessoms leapt from his seat and joined in. It's unclear what exactly drew Sessoms into the riot, 
Some said that he had run down to the crowd to rescue a young woman who got trapped in the middle of the brawl. Another swore that Sessoms and some other upperclassmen were trying to break things up. But according to one of Sessoms' friends, E.A. Vance, the two of them ran down to the field for one purpose only, to protect their fellow Aggies and join the fight. Come on, Vance, boost me over the fence. I've got to get down there. One, two, three. That's it. I've almost... Charles, look out! Just as Sessoms made it onto the field, a stocky man in a blue suit allegedly took a swing at the cadet with a four-foot club or a piece of a chair. Sessoms was able to dodge the attack and chase the man through the mayhem on the field. According to various witnesses, the man eventually turned and took another two swings with the weapon. Sessoms was able to block them both with his arm. But finally, the man cocked the wooden club back over his shoulder and let loose one last swing which savagely connected with Sesum's skull. The blow was so loud that a witness said it sounded like a gun. Sesum's legs immediately buckled and he fell into a pile on the football field. The man looked down at him. Then he dropped the club and ran. Sesum's was crumpled on the ground with a riot raging around him. If he stayed there on the field, he was liable to get trampled so two A&M cadets quickly ran to his side and dragged him to the safety of the sidelines. Get him up! Get him up! Look at the gash on his head. He's bleeding all over. Oh my, is he dead? I don't know. Stop yelling and help me lift him. He's still breathing. We need to get him out the field. Come on, cadet, up you go. The cadets dragged Sesums all the way to a first aid station. He was still conscious, but Sesums was bleeding from the head and seemed confused. How do you feel now, buddy? Did we win? You mean the game or the fight? The, the game? The, the fight? The game? Let's just take it easy. I, I'm fine. I, I'm all better. I, I just need to throw up. No, don't get up. Wait for the nurse. Nurse! Nurse! The nurse on duty gave Sesums a glass of ammonia and water, which caused him to vomit. But as he sat and waited for a doctor in the first aid tent, the brawl continued to spiral out of control. On the field, J.D. Langford was at a complete loss. Nothing the yell leader could do would get his cadets' attention or stop them from pummeling the boys from Baylor. It was bloody, violent chaos. And then suddenly, he had a plan. Langford raced to the Ford that had started this whole riot in the first place and climbed up to high ground. From this vantage point, he could see at least a hundred of his fellow students in the teeming mass of fists and bodies. But far off, he could also see the A&M band leader and he furiously tried to get the man's attention. Finally, Langford caught his eye and gave him a signal. The band leader understood at once. He rallied the band and all at once, they started to play. The sound of the national anthem boomed out across the football field, and all at once, the fighting stopped. The violent spell was broken. A calm settled across the bruised and bloodied students from Baylor and Texas A&M. With that, both sides returned to their seats, and amazingly, the game continued. 
Baylor held their lead in the second half and beat the Aggies by 11 points. Many in the crowd likely worried that the defeat would break the fragile truce and reignite the riot once again. But it never happened. Instead, after the game, Lankford had every A&M student wait patiently for 30 minutes as the stadium cleared. When it was their time to leave, Lankford led them out through a side door to avoid the Baylor crowd. The violence was over, but for Charles Sessoms, the damage was already done. The 24-year-old A&M senior was dead by the next morning. The two colleges quickly agreed to work together to find the boy responsible. Over the next few days, though, their shaky truce dissolved into anger and blame and a potential conspiracy to protect the killer. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Charles Sessoms. For more information on the 1926 Cotton Palace riot, amongst the many sources we used, we found Battle of the Brazos, a Texas football rivalry, a riot, and a murder by T.G. Webb, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by River Donahay, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Rebecca Thomas, and Dan Velasquez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. Be sure to follow Incredible Feats for your daily dose of offbeat entertainment. Join comedian Dan Cummins every weekday as he shares unbelievable and true stories of physical strength, mental focus, and genuine bizarre behavior. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 